Welcome to the Farcast, coming to you every week with insiders and experts to give you insight into the changing economic world. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. We've got a terrific Farcast set up for you here today from Washington, D.C., the home of the World Series champion nationals. It has been fabulous here in Washington for the past week. And by the way, when you think about Washington and realize uh, that we have to put up with all these politicians in our backyards. You know, I was born here. My family's been here a long time. And politicians are just sort of one of those ills you have to face every day. And now you get a World Series team. It just lifts everybody. We've had the parades. It's been exciting. It's wonderful. The Capitals, of course, have been a fabulous championship team, too. They've... uh, uh, and they've congratulated the Nats, and they've, they've uh, celebrated the Nats, and the Nats celebrated the Capitals, and, and, you know, you can see the collegiality. You know where you haven't heard one word, by the way, from my Washington friends? I'd like anybody to tell me if they've seen the Redskins actually congratulate the Nationals or any word out of Dan Snyder. Not one. It's been crickets, ladies and gentlemen. Always worries us a little bit, but not surprisingly. Not surprisingly. On the forecast, we believe that money's hard to make, and that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. Don't make emotional decisions. And we've got a great lineup for you this morning. My friend Jim Urio uh, from the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. We've got Dan Mahaffey. We're going to be talking about the elections last night, the new polls out this morning that show uh, President Trump at a remarkable deficit now to any one of a number of Democratic presidential candidates in a general election. That, that changes perhaps the math in Washington. And then finally, our friend Jack Perugian, also from Chicago, coming to us on the forecast. And you'll remember a year ago, Jack said that this was one of the greatest buying opportunities of a decade. He was the only voice that pretty much I heard saying anything that bullish. Looks like he was right. Let's go to Jack this morning and find out Uh, what he has to say uh, there. Uh, So, uh, my friend uh, Jim Urio with us this morning from the uh, floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, a graduate of University of Illinois, a degree in economics, and you always see him on CNBC. And ladies and gentlemen, when you see Jim Urio on CNBC, uh, take that mute button off. You want to hear what he has to say. Uh, and that's why I know you're turning into the forecast because I've already talked too much. You want to hear from Jim. Good morning, Jim. Morning. Thanks for having me, Michael. Well, welcome. We're really glad you're here. Uh, Jim, we are coming in here to the last, what, 45, 50 days of the year uh, for ni- uh, 2019. So tell me what you think, where we are, how you're reading the tea leaves. The futures are looking just a little bit up this morning. Optimism on a China trade deal. How many times over the past year have we said that? Uh, God Almighty! Uh, and that, you that know, blows me away that we still rally on any little whisper of optimism. And you'd think we'd become numb to that, but we certainly haven't. Um, but you know, my take has been fairly consistent over the last year, and I've probably said it a hundred times, and I apologize if people have heard it a hundred times. But to me, the overwhelming theme is two things. And everyone thinks, well, you know, if money's cheap, rates are low, that's positive for the stock market. That's only one component of it. If rates are low, 
juxtaposed against an economic situation that doesn't warrant rates that low, or at least the perception is that it doesn't warrant rates that low, that's where the magic happens for stocks, and that's what we've seen over the last year, in my opinion, without any question. You think it's because of the low rates and the ample money that basically this is a monetary, a, a, a market rally fueled by monetary policy? Well, no, but I also said that the economic condition is pretty good as well, too. Um, that I, I think it's an imbalance with you know, the comparison of low rates to the economic activity that's going on. I mean, last week underscored the whole thesis, and Wednesday they eased rates, and then on Friday the, the, the jobs numbers come out, and their blockbuster might be an over-dramatic way to say it, but they were pretty darn good. Well, and, and we saw 1.9% GDP growth. I mean, it seems to me that this economy has been kind of rocking right along at that 2% for the last 10 years. And while that's not great, given all of the debt that we're incurring and all of the monetary uh, stimulus that we've been throwing at it, damn, this ain't bad. I mean, you know, you think back to 2009 and we were, what, 66, 6,700 on the Dow and now we're 27,000 on the Dow and you've still got consistent GDP growth at 2%. What the hell's wrong with that? It seems it's amazing to me. And I think the Fed is going to stay easy and they have no choice. And I'm going to unleash a theory here that I'm alone on because every time I bring it to smart people, they say I'm crazy. I think the Fed looks back and they sit and they look at a state like Illinois, which I'm standing in Illinois right now, and they look at the underfunded pension liabilities, not just on the state level, but on county and city, and they say to themselves, there's only one possible way that some of these major uh, states that are underfunded on pensions escape anything, is that if we have relatively aggressive inflation. Then you flash forward to hearing a guy like James Bullard speak a couple weeks ago on CNBC, where he sounded so frustrated that they couldn't spur any inflation. He sounded like, you know, to me, I equated it with someone who's trying to start the charcoal at a barbecue, puts a little lighter fluid on, puts a little more lighter fluid on, and eventually just empties the whole bottle in there. I, it seems like that's what he's ready to do to get inflation. I think it's dangerous. I think that's what they're going to do. You know, uh, it's a very interesting, it's, it's, it's an interesting theory. Uh, I, I feel a little bit like, you know, the, the cash that's around is safe. You know, I, uh, you ready for this, uh, Uriel? Here we go. As I said uh, on the cover of the uh, business and finance section of the Wall Street Journal today, as I'm quoted Fantastic. as saying. We should pause at that point in time to say that. Anyway, <laughs> let's move along. <laughs> you know, you know the, the problem, you know, when you do what you and I do in the media is that we do enough of it that there, it's very easy to find, at least for me, not for you, but for me, uh, a number of things that I probably shouldn't have said over the years Amen. Uh, you know, yeah. that, that are out there. Yeah. But this is a story, and I think it's a very important story uh, today by Ira, uh, I never know how to say it, Ayas Bashvili uh, is, is the uh, journal reporter, an awfully smart, very nice guy. He's talking about the amount of cash on the sidelines. $3.4 trillion in cash and money market funds. That's up a trillion dollars over the last three years. And he called, when he called me, he said, you know, uh, Michael, doesn't that make you uh, nervous? People aren't buying. People are sitting on their cash. And I said, oh, no, that, that makes me comfortable. I like that. Um, I mean, I understand. No doubt about it. I Those understand. are the things we look for as a 100% right? positive sort of indicator. I mean, there's plenty of negative indicators on the other side, too. But that taken in a, in a vacuum, I'll take that as no question that it's positive. That's where the, the, we make highs when people are like, what the heck with this? I'm missing this rally. I got to get in now. And everybody jumps in. I hear a lot of pessimism. And every time I hear it, I think, OK, we're not at the highs yet. 
I just talked to another. So I, I, you uh, like you probably. I sit on a bunch of not-for-profit boards, and whenever uh, somebody like Jim or me sits on a not-for-profit board, we are on the investment committee. We chair the investment committee. We're on the finance committee. It's it's just more work when we when we go to these things. And uh, I listened to one of our money managers uh, come and presented a hospital, and I chair the investment committee for one of the local hospitals, Sibley Hospital. And uh, this manager is sitting on 25% cash. It's a very good money manager. They've been around. They've managed money for the hospital forever. I, I think this guy's very smart. He said, we, this is one of the th three peaks in my career where our money market uh, cash balances have built up. I can't find anything to buy. My discipline says I can't buy. And in fact, discipline at Farm Miller in Washington is making it very difficult. Our cash levels are building up. Um, I'm not sure what to make of it, but I know that my downside's a little bit limited, and any kind of a prolonged downturn is limited when I hear that there's that much cash on the sidelines, um, it, because it means that as you see that dip, the people have the cash to come in and start buying those buying those bottoms. Jim, what are you seeing for the rest of the year? Give Fred and Ethel some advice here, and I know you've got a hard time to get out, and I, I want to make sure, sure. We, we respect your time, but... Give us some advice about how you see right. coming through the end of the year, and what do you think coming into this 2020 election year? Well, I always say when you say that, I don't give advice. I tell you what I do myself as an investor and as a trader, and I am staying long. I have not seen necessarily any indication that um, the, the, the turn is coming yet. I, I just haven't. We've, many, many different sectors have broken out. I'm thinking of increasing some exposure in oil names that pay dividends because I think that um, that the price of oil is going higher, and I also think that um, that dividends are going to look better as we our rates start to go lower, and I believe our rates will go lower. The German Bund yield is close to negative 0.4, and our 10-year is what 1.8ish. Uh, uh, you know, I personally think that that's just too widespread. So I like things like that. I'm staying. I'm staying long. But you know, volatility is low, so I'm buying a little bit of protection too as we go. But I, I'm still relatively confident. Uh, relatively confident, staying long, not seeing the warning signs. Farm Miller in Washington, we stay long most all of the time. We we tend to own stocks and we manage risk by selling things when they get to be too expensive. And we have a very clear discipline that defines what we mean by too expensive. And we want to buy stocks all the time. We want to stay invested, but we, we just can't, you know, uh, pay too much and go crazy uh, with all of this. Uh, Jim, do you think the Fed's doing the right thing? Yes, I think the Fed has no choice. The, uh, the right thing, okay, I'm mixed on that. I think the Fed has very little choice. I think that they know that a lot of their problems will go away if they can get a little bit of inflation. I think the macroeconomic condition domestically is fine and doesn't warrant eases. But I think the debt levels and the global situation probably does. I think they do feel probably that they have to counterbalance any sort of economic negative that the trade wars present. Um, so I think they're caught in a really tough spot. So we'll like, I, I'll walk back and say I don't know, won't necessarily say they're doing the right thing, but I'm, I, I understand their dilemma completely. Do you sympathize with Jim Bullard and his frustration? I mean, uh, I, I've seen Jim over the years get uh, very emotional about a lot of different things and change his opinion what seemed to be, you know, kind of uh, r rather remarkable ways uh, over short periods. So absolutely I do. But here's one thing that I'd like to point out is that I think when I hear some of these Fed speakers talk that they don't they think about inflation 
and they've been thinking about it for 100 years. And I think inflation rears its head in, in very different ways now. We saw it in tech stocks and we saw it in real estate. I think they have to be looking more for asset bubbles than they are. They're looking for inflation on Wonder Bread, and I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the most important points uh, that I've heard uh, in the media, on the forecast, or anywhere else. The Fed's probably not looking at inflation the right ways. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we always learn so much from my friend Jim Murio. It is a pleasure to have you on the forecast. Steady as she goes, the word from Jim Murio, watch the Fed. They're trying to do the right thing, uh, but maybe not thinking about inflation the right way. He's staying long, and we're going to hear from him again before the end of the year because I'm going to have really try and twist his arm and get him to come back. And if you want to see Jim when you're in Chicago, you need to go to Brant's. Uh, it's it's the best burger in the country. You just need to go there. Thank hey. you. Thank you for the plug there. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. There we go. Hey, Jim, thanks for being on the forecast. I hope I get to see you on CNBC soon. Thank you for having me, Michael. See you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be right back with my friend Dan Mahaffey on the forecast. Thank you for listening to the forecast. I'm Harry Jennings, producer for the show. We also bring you a daily podcast, the Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Each morning the U.S. markets are open, we give you a summary of markets, headlines, commodities, and futures before the opening bell. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all major podcast platforms, the Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. And now, back to Michael and his guests. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host... Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, season three of the Farcast uh, from Washington, D.C., home of the World Series champion, Washington Nationals. God, I like saying that. Dan Mahaffey, do you like hearing that? You know, it's not good to see here uh, Cubs World Series champions, but I'll take it. Well, but, you know, we need to say something that's quasi-possible and realistic. And, uh, you know, Washington actually has, 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 has done that. But go Cubs, sure, if you want to. Um, I, think we can be, <laughs> I think we can be talking to – you know, I, I was saying earlier, Dan, before we get to all of what's going on in politics, which just is amazing how it just becomes more mind-boggling week by week. Uh, we haven't had a slow week in three years on politics. Um, I, you know, for the celebration between the Capitals and the other teams congratulating the Nationals, haven't heard a word out of the Redskins. Haven't heard a word out of Dan Snyder <laughs> saying congratulations. Have you? I haven't heard a thing. No, I, I haven't heard a peep, and I think they were embarrassed because that game where Davey Martinez got thrown out, he yeah. showed better strength conditioning than the entire Redskins line. <laughs> well, they're big, though, on that line, and they, yeah. and they stand still very well. Uh, all right, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, our senior political analyst on the Farcast, has been our senior political analyst on the Farcast for about all three seasons now. We started out, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who have been with us for a long time, you might remember that we went through a series of weekly political analysts who would come in and, and give us some insights. Never found anybody better than Mahaffey, so we've stuck with the winner here. So thank you, Dan. You're too kind, Michael. Thank you. Uh, well, I, you know, I hear from our listeners and um, uh, that's, they, they, they like to hear your thinking and I appreciate it a lot. Um, uh, you, you, you do that well, by the way, that thinking thing, you do that well. So 
let's uh, yeah. tell, tell me where we Does are. Does well in cogitation. That's what the nun said. There we go. A little cogitation. And you do the cogitation. I'll do the prestidigitation. And somehow we'll <laughs> end up at a good spot. Uh, so, Dan, uh, looking at uh, the new face of politics here on Wednesday morning after election night across the country, we saw governor's races. We saw Senate and House races in the state of Virginia. What is what's what what happened first of all because many of our listeners may not follow this stuff that closely what happened and uh, w is there a different message what are the implications? Well, I think it's interesting to look at Kentucky, where one you had a a very conservative governor, some considered him Trump before Trump in many ways, and he was extremely unpopular. So I don't want to read too much into that. Uh, number there, but it was still a, a rebuke to the president that even after campaigning for him and trying to get him across the finish line, he just couldn't in a deep red state like Kentucky. Uh, Virginia, on the other hand, is a little more interesting because that just keeps telling you that if, it, if, if it's the suburbs, if it's affluent educated voters, if it's women voters, if it's young voters, they are all fleeing the Republican Party under Donald Trump. Uh, the, the, a state like Virginia certainly has experienced massive demographic change with the growth in northern Virginia, but the Republican Party here has, I think, taught a master class in how not to run a state party. And then on top of that, you, you have the, the, the Trump uh, phenomenon just weighing down Republicans across the state. Listen, I read uh, Greg Valliere this morning. Uh, the Washington Post uh, has a new poll out, and we, we know that the Washington uh, Post has a bit of a liberal bent, but I don't know that that skews their polls. Do, do we still trust the Washington Post polls as being unbiased, Dan? Yeah, you, you trust a lot of these polls, and, and even look to it, if you look at the real clear politics average of polls, you see the same trends I think you're about to describe. Well, uh, it, it shows uh, Trump losing by... 17% to Joe Biden, 15% to Elizabeth Warren, and 14% to Bernie Sanders. Um, polls late this summer showed that those Democrats only were only narrowly ahead. Now they're widening that margin. And then uh, that poll went on to show that uh, he's tied with Biden at 47% among men, trails 64 to 33% among women um, from Huggy Bear Joe. Uh, the women uh, will still go with Huggy Bear. Uh, his support among Republicans, which had gotten to near 90% in the past year, now at 80%. I mean, still pretty good, but, but that's, uh, you know, you lose 10 percentage points. That's a big deal. And the Post poll showed him losing by 17 points among independents uh, and uh, the non-college-educated -edu uh, whites' vote has plunged from 36% in the election to 18% now, so fallen in half, 36 to 18. What is, do you, is that consistent with what you're seeing around the country? You said the real clear politics, which is a very unbiased, nonpartisan, uh, you can find Real Clear Politics website, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to go check that. It's one of the things I check regularly. How does that all sit with you, Dan? Well, what it does is it sits with me well because it, you see this continued trend of independence moving away from the Republican Party, 
a, a shrinking Republican Party as well. If you look at uh, polls where you track party identification from 2016 until now, the, the number of self-identified Republicans drops by about 5 to 7 percent. So even if the president is maintaining that 80 percent approval rating among Republicans, that's among a smaller pool of Republicans. So therefore, you, you see these trends moving away and you see these broader national trends where you're probably going to have, uh, in all likelihood, the Democrat winning the popular vote again, uh, barring a, a, a major shift in, in the circumstances. But you still look at states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, still running pretty neck and neck. Uh, but then the, the economic story in those states is just still not working with the, with the president's trade war, which I think, again, gets to also what we saw in uh, Greg Valliere's note this morning, that perhaps these results make it even uh, more uh, pressure on the president to try and get some kind of deal done with China and done quickly. Let's talk about that for a second. Uh, if the president is under pressure in these other polls, which he clearly is, tell us, t j just give us your thoughts about how that works out with China. And why, why do you think, well, sir, why, why is Valliere saying what he's saying? That, that makes uh, Trump more desperate to do something? Well, that you're going to have to get some kind of deal that starts to get the, the, the tariffs down on the manufacturing sector, gets agricultural purchases back up. We, we keep talking about phase one, but to, to paraphrase it slightly for a, a Sino-American audience, everyone's still asking where's the pork when it comes to the, the details yeah. on this. So... Uh, you know, getting something done. And I think you're going to also see the Chinese try and push their advantage to, to try and get broad reductions in these tariffs. And, and perhaps, again, understanding the, the president's mindset, you look historically at presidents, and every great president we consider has had to adapt to circumstances in their time. Uh, Lincoln had to learn about warfare and, and fire underperforming generals. FDR had to pivot during the, the New Deal to work with business and then pivot to preparing for World War II. President Trump doesn't pivot. That's not his style. That's not his, the way he maneuvers. And as a result, how is he going to shift this on, on China and, and the confrontation there? And how does he also change? We see this, this tenor that uh, you know many people, and you look at these polls too, 30%, only 30% of Americans think he has the temperament and the trustworthiness to be president. And, and those are the things that, again, are, are weighing on the, the economic headwinds he's facing and the political ones. So how does he change tack here going into 2020 will be interesting to see, with, with impeachment also having him you know, in full trench warfare fighting mode. I have a friend who uses an interesting test as they— as, as, uh... Uh, he and his wife consider uh, who they're, for whom they're going to vote, and that is, would they want their 20-something-year-old son or daughter to work in this person's White House? Uh, and I think that clarifies a lot of issues. Would, would I want my you know, 25-year-old daughter to go to work in the White House right now? Would I have wanted her, how would I have felt about her being there under President Obama, President Bush, uh, President Clinton? Um, you, you can come up with some different answers, but I think those are, uh, they, they, they do shine some light. And I, I also like what you said last week when I was asking you 
about your personal politics, which was a bit unfair of me, but I think it's, I, I talked about it because um, it, it is in the minds, uh, back of minds of our listeners, which way does this guy go? Is this guy advancing his agenda? Because w whether you're listening to CNN or MSNBC or Fox, you, you do hear these agendas, and they are clear. Does the Farcast have an agenda? Does Mahaffey have an agenda? Does Far have an agenda? I, I, I truly, really try to stay as neutral as I possibly can uh, and look at issues. And I see some good things that Donald Trump has done. And uh, I also look at, 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 I think, what has been at different points, some very despicable behavior out of the president. And I can uh, uh, somehow, I'm able to say, yes, I think some of that behavior was despicable, but I do like these things that he's done over here. Uh, none of that's to say uh, what I do in terms when I enter the voting booth, but I, I try to offer some insights about what this politician's policy will mean for the economy and will mean for the markets. I feel that I can provide a service there, and I want that to be unbiased by my politics. And when I asked Dan last week basically about sort of party affiliation, he's, he, he identified as a conservative, um, and I like that. I, 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 am a ver I am very conservative fiscally. I am a free markets uh, person, uh, capitalist. Uh, devout capitalist. Uh, I believe in free markets, and 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 that's it. And and socially, I I try to be progressive, and I try to help and support as many causes as I can, and lift up my fellow men when I can, and when we can afford it. It's very important to me that I don't, you know, put myself in the poorhouse trying to help everybody else, because then I just become one of those other people in the poorhouse looking for somebody else to take care of me. I can't do that. It's irresponsible. So, uh, Dan. Uh, as we look, uh, as we look forward from this point, um, where do we go? Uh, believe it or not, we're kind of out of time here uh, already. But tell me what you're seeing over the next week. How does this play out with uh, the uh, impeachment hearings? What does uh, this uh, signed on um, uh, reversal mean? Uh, if you can cover all that quickly, and then we're going to have you back next week. Yeah, I think what we see, the, the big thing with uh, impeachment, and be it the Sondland's reversal or other details, it's very different from the Mueller report, where, where frankly, Mueller was doing a very good investigation, but he was approaching it like a federal investigation rather than a, a, a political struggle, and that the, the White House was able to control the narrative of the Mueller report because Mueller was not putting forth a narrative. He was working in secret. Well, the, the details of impeachment have kept coming out, and we see that now that the, the White House is, is struggling to control the narrative. They don't even really seem to have a strategy on how to respond. I think we're, we're coalescing now that there, there's going to be this trial in the Senate, and the GOP message is going to be, yes, there was a, a quid pro quo, but it wasn't bad enough of a quid pro quo, or it wasn't a successful quid pro quo. That that seems to be the sense of the the argument you're getting from the the deepest Trump reporters supporters in the Senate. So well, moving does that forward, change, does that change anything, Dan? Okay, so we do have the narrative changing. It looks like there's a quid pro quo. Uh, no matter what this turns into, can Donald Trump still shoot somebody in Central Park and get reelected and keep his support base? I mean that that seems he's going to be... keep his support base. That's not going to be enough to get him reelected, though. I think that you're seeing the limits of that support base. 
And when you start to see the numbers like we saw, Virginia, Kentucky, and other states, what does that do to those moderate Republican senators who are up for re-election in 2020 and how they approach this decision? How does McConnell approach this all? There's a lot, there is a bigger seed of doubt planted in many members of the Senate's head right now because of the results last night. Is that enough to, to push them over the edge? No, we're going to go move to this trial. And I think we're going to get to see a lot of the, the arcane details of the Senate on, on full display. Look, I think it's going to be even interesting to see how Chief Justice Roberts approaches this trial, uh, being the presiding officer over it. He's going to have to learn Senate procedure very quickly. And even if you're the Supreme Court justice, that is not something that is learned quickly. Uh, so this is going to be interesting to see how the, each side starts to prepare for this Senate trial uh, probably early next year over the coming weeks. Uh, and will it be enough to push the president forward uh, to do something with China? Uh, I've, ladies and gentlemen, whatever that happens to be, if we get that deal with China, even if it's only soybeans, even whatever that deal looks like, to settle this ongoing dispute in some way will be good for markets. And and if you were listening to segment one with my friend Jim Murio, you might have heard me mention that I'm quoted on the front page of the business and finance section of today's Wall Street Journal. Yes, the Wall Street covered on the... Uh, where we're talking about the amount of cash on the sidelines, $3.4 trillion on the sidelines. That's up $1 trillion over the last three years. With that much money on the sidelines, dips are... Uh, going to be muted, but that's a lot of gasoline sitting next to our campfire that can ignite some serious flames. So if markets suddenly feel better about this trade war, watch out. This thing can take off to the upside. I don't think that necessarily would be healthy, but things could go fast, uh, could go up very fast, and prices could really climb. It would be much too expensive. It's already kind of fully valued. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Can't thank you enough. Uh, you'll come back next week? Yep. And thank you for having me. Always good, to, always good to chat with you. You're the best. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be back with the Farcast fave, Jack Perugian, my old friend Jack Perugian. We've done this together for years, and boy, was he right. We're going to show you, tell you and, and play for you exactly what Jack said a year ago about this being the best buying opportunity in a decade, and I thought he was out of his mind. When we come back on the Farcast. This is Harry Jennings, producer for the Farcast. Thank you for listening. Michael welcomes guests every week to the Farcast to help uncover the trends that fly beneath the headlines that impact our world, the economy, and the investing environment. If you have a group or conference and would be interested in Michael presenting his assessment and forecast for the economy for the coming year, please give me a call at 202-530-5608 or email me at hjennings at farmiller.com. Michael has delivered the keynote address at the YPO Economic Summit, spoken at the Matheson Financial Advisors Conference, the Palm Beach Con Chamber of Commerce, and a wide range of other venues. We are booking now for dates in 2020. I'd be happy to talk to you about your audience and potential dates. And now, back to the forecast. Thank you for joining us on the forecast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the forecast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks for joining us again this week, season three of the forecast. 
uh, segment one with Jim Urio and fascinating with Dan Mahaffey uh, finding out what he thinks about the elections from last night and what the implications are for the president uh, uh, for his reelection and how it increases the probability of some sort of a trade deal with China. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. As I said, watch that cash. Uh, it can go, it'll support us on the way down, but it can really ignite on the way up. And whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, we can actually find out right now from one of our most favorite, most popular guests, my friend Jack Berugian, uh from Chicago. Jack is one of the sages of our business. Uh, if you see him on CNBC, unmute that thing fast and listen to Jack Perugian. Uh, these are words of wisdom, and I've, uh, it's what I do. I love listening to Jack, uh, and largely he's been right. Before I introduce him uh, exactly, I want to tell you, I want to play a clip for you. Uh, Jack's appearance pretty much December last year on the Farcast. Uh, listen to what Jack had to say. And it's going to be one of those things where, you know, everybody that, that is on the sidelines is going to say, oh, my goodness, all right, because they're going to realize that they just missed the buying opportunity of the decade. And that's, that's, that's really how I feel about what's ahead of us here. It's indeed we can do the right things. Wasn't that amazing? And now live and in person on the forecast, my friend Jack Perugian. Hey, Jack, welcome back. Hey, Michael, thank you. And, th and thank you for the kind words, by the way. That was very nice. Well, uh, your kindness, uh, and you, you know, uh, you were, you've been very right. And I kind of thought a year ago uh, that you were basically crazy, um, uh, being as bullish as you were with as many things tilting against markets as there were. And I thought valuations were okay. Please, uh, first, congratulations, but tell us what you see now. How, does, how is this world looking to you? Uh, is, is the rally over? Should we sell everything and follow uh, Gunlock and Nouriel Rabini into the darkness and doom? Well, it, let's face it. If you, if you follow any of those guys, you know what? You're going to be down a lot of money, as, as, as you well know. But, but for me, I think what we want to pay attention to is, is um, what is happening with all of this cash on the sidelines that you've been pointing out. Look, there's, there's a lot to be said for a rally that goes up, makes new all-time highs, and is one of the least respected rallies of all time. And that's really what we are dealing with. When you talk to people, all they talk to you about is are the headwinds. They talk about Brexit. They talk about China and tariffs. They talk about, But then nobody realizes that these low bars and these low expectations that were set are being exceeded even in the face of those headwinds. So, so that's one of the reasons why not only are we seeing earnings growth surprising people, uh, if you think about it. I mean, remember, you had expectations for a catastrophe uh, right, right. because of tariffs. And, and, but more than that, we're starting to see something that nobody is talking about, and that is multiple expansion. And multiple expansion comes when you have that feel-good attitude, and multiple expansion is also – the last phase of the rally, Michael, as you and I know, yeah. that's when the euphoria comes into play. And that's really what we have yet to see, and that's what I'm waiting for before I start to see that real capitulation by, by all of these people that, that, that get on TV every day and tell you that uh, you've got to be out of the market or you've got to be defensive. Every time I hear that, I get excited. I go buy more. 
We have a melt-up kind of a stock market that you're describing, though it, it certainly has rebounded very strongly from the nadir, uh, that 20% decline in the S&P that we saw last December. But we've also seen, Jack, kind of a continuing, ongoing 10-year melt-up in the economy. GDP just came in at 1.9%. For all the things that are wrong, uh, I guess the one thing we haven't seen is, 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 is any inflation. But can this economy, with the amount of debt, I mean, the one thing from all of the naysayers that I hear that, that kind of catches my attention is the deficit and debt. How do the deficit and debt, how does the uh, absence of any real inflation strike you and sort of figure into your calculus? Well, you know, we have heard about deficit and debt our entire professional lives. I remember hearing it when I was in college at Loyola here, and, and, and I've been hearing it, you know, ever since. Uh, the reality, though, is during those times, we also had inflation to be able to inflate our way out of that debt. So, you know, one of the problems that we're dealing with right now is that we're using old medicine in a new age. And, and we've got to be very careful of that. Now, having said that to you, you know, I think that the, the, the fact is that there's still an appetite uh, for U.S. debt from around the world, especially when you're looking at $17 trillion of negative yield, uh, you know, wherever you're looking. Uh, but, but the reality is that with, with policy that makes sense, we still become that, that, that shining beacon uh, for, for capital. And as long as capital is treated well, it attracts capital from around the world. And, and thus far, we still have that. Now, that's the problem. And, that's what I, that, and if we get to the, to, to the question of what I would worry about, what I would worry about is, is what might lie ahead of us in 2020 with the election. Okay. So, uh, you know, I had a great friend of mine, who uh, Carter Bees, who was uh, an SEC commissioner. And one of Carter's arguments uh, for was that the clarity of provided by U.S. regulators and by contract laws and copyrights was afforded our markets a premium uh, to other world markets because investors around the world basically knew that you could get a fair shake in the U.S. Uh, our prices would be higher. Our price-to-earnings multiples be, would be higher because wealth could be protected here. In other countries, Jack, as you know around the world, People wouldn't think of investing if they didn't have some inside information. If a company didn't have somebody uh, highly that they were close to, highly placed in government that they were slipping bribes to, and that's, th that's just normal, you wouldn't invest in those companies. But because of all of that uncertainty, those companies might trade at 10 times earnings, while our markets will trade at 18 times earnings because of that clarity and property laws. Is that what you're talking about? Are you suggesting that those property laws and the protection of private industry uh, could be threatened? Um, it's, it's not that as much as the, the socialism that seems to be coming out of the left. And I don't want to make it a political show. But, but look, you know, for those of us that remember what was happening in 08, there was a strong correlation between McCain's numbers going down and the market getting weaker and weaker. There was a lot of uncertainty out there. And people will, will say, oh, that, that's crazy. But no, I, I was there. I watched it happen on a daily basis. The, the higher President Obama's numbers went, the lower the market got, the weaker it got, because there was all this uncertainty about what the dislocation might bring. And it just fed into itself. And of course, there were other reasons that we saw things happen in 08. But getting back to it, election years scare me. If we are talking 
about rolling back what is American freestyle capitalism, which has been driving this economy, driving these markets to all-time highs, leading the U.S., leading technology innovation and technology transfer around the world. If we abandon all of that for socialist principles, which is being basically what we're seeing the front runners of the Democratic Party preaching, then then there's a, there's a problem in in the, in my mind, and I would be very very careful. And that is what I would be looking for. If there's going to be a leak. If we're going to be watching it. It's going to be in the numbers, and we'll start paying attention to that probably you know the second quarter of next year. The state of Virginia, from their election last night, saw both the House and Senate swing to Democratic majorities. Uh, what the folks I'm talking to in Washington think that actually changing the Senate to a Democratic uh, uh, majority is, you know, is, is still very kind of a, a, a far a, a hard thing to hard thing to figure out how that will happen, but it it could. I mean, it could happen that we could see a, a Democratic uh, nominee uh, candidate win the presidency, and that the Senate and the House would all go. And in, in a situation like that, given. Um, the sort of policy proposals you're seeing from the leading Democratic candidates, if we look, and, and Pete Buttigieg is rising this morning, um, uh, those, that, that would cause you concern. Big time. And I think one of the things that we have to really be concerned about is the fact that we have yet to see CapEx being unleashed the way we want it to be. CapEx right now is a coiled spring. You know, everybody's been waiting for it. And a lot of that is because of the uncertainty that surrounds uh, tariffs in China, uh, what might be happening, which, by the way, are, are things that absolutely have to be cleared up. I mean, you know, uh, look, I've done business in China, and I hated the fact that they own 51 percent of the entity and that I had to give up all of the IP to them and all the rest of that. But I was told that was the only way to do business in China. So, you know, to me, getting everybody on the same level playing field around the world and making it a global free trade zone is wonderful. It's a great idea. All right. Remember, when we opened our arms to China, they were just a communist nation coming out. They were a developing nation. We, we had learned from history that if we didn't embrace the new world order, it, it led to war. You know, I mean, that's what history has taught us. So we wanted to learn from history. We embraced this new culture, this new, uh, you know, this, this new reformation that was taking place in China. And now it's time to actually level the playing field because we've grown them to this size. So for me, that's going to happen. It's only a matter of time, both for China. They need it to happen. We need it to happen. But more importantly, you have got a lot of money that corporations are sitting on that are it's waiting to be unleashed. It's waiting to be spent. It's waiting to be to be spent on infrastructure, on inventory builds, uh, on various. Look, you know, think about it. Even the NBA uh, it got got into a situation because yeah. they've got 500 million potential fans that they're dealing with. But, you know, and if, you, if each one of them spent $10 a year on NBA merchandise, you know, that, that's a potential windfall right there. Oh. So, again, these are the things I think that, that need to be worked out. But what concerns me is this drift that we're taking, not to the left, but to the hard left. And that hard left, that veer to the hard left, Michael, is something that we should all be concerned with. You know, it's one of those things that's always kind of been puzzling to me for everybody you talk to and young people who when you, they're growing up. And so many people want to tell you that they really want to be rich. They really want to be millionaires. Uh, and, uh, and at the same time, they hate the millionaires and they hate the rich. It's, it's really strange here in America. 
how that how that happens and how this socialism has taken uh, hold. I mean, it, 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 it's, a, it's a bit troubling. I keep waiting for that pendulum to, to swing back. Let me push back a little bit on CapEx with you, Jack, because it, it strikes me that uh, what we have seen is basically uh, a supply-driven rally. There's plenty of liquidity uh, around. There's plenty of cash. Interest rates are very low. Let's keep the uh, what, what's going on in the repo markets, uh, set that aside. That's a bit of a more technical thing. But, but basically, it's, it's not our inability to make more donuts. The U.S. can make more donuts if we need to make more donuts. We can ramp up production pretty quickly. What we don't have is a line of people outside the door to buy more donuts because that two-thirds of GDP has just uh, hadn't seen wage gains in a long time. They're starting to see them. And so to me, the most bullish thing that I see out there is that people are beginning to see wage gains. And if you give the U.S. consumer a dollar, Jack, that U.S. consumer more dependently and reliably than any other consumer or citizen of the world will spend that dollar. Uh, so what we need is a little more demand, I think, to encourage the CapEx uh, rather than, and, and yes, a, a, a little more certainty from the trade situation and what's going on around the world and more stability there and certainty would be good. But I'm looking for more demand, and I think that may take longer. You think I'm wrong? Uh, you know, I, I think that there's a bigger question there. It's more of a psychological shift uh, in the American consumer. And I think a lot of it started because of the Great Recession. You know, households are, are probably in, in better shape now than they've been in the last 30 years. Yes. Debt levels are a lot lower. I mean, they're sitting on a lot more cash. Um, you know, it, so so when you're talking about household and household incomes, you know, remember, I think on a balance sheet basis, if you were to look at our balance sheet of, of each household, they're much better off than they were. Now, having said that to you, um, I think one of the problems with wage growth is the fact that there's no inflation. And yeah. inflation, we've become so used to the fact that, that you know, we've been, we've been inflation fighters for so long that now that we're defending prices, all right, and trying to meet this 2% inflation goal, that the, this imaginary goal that the Fed has set up, all right, it, it's making it difficult for, for employers to pass on wage gains. It's making it because, quite frankly, uh, they, can't, they can't raise prices. They've got no pricing power. And right. quite frankly, they don't need to do it because their input prices aren't going up anymore. So, so it, it really becomes this vicious cycle, but, but it's really been perpetuated by what I think happened 10 years ago. And, and it just seems to be working its way through the economy in a very unique way right now. So, uh, Jack, uh, I can't believe it. We're out of time, and it's amazing. I always, uh, this is always, you, you really are one of our favorite guests. The notes that we, notes that we get from our listeners uh, from all over the world, it's wonderful. We have listeners around the world now with the podcasts. are wonderful. You download them wherever you are, ladies and gentlemen. We appreciate you doing that. Uh, and we know that you love Jack. So, uh, Jack, tell us, uh, tell Fred and Ethel, too, as they look here at the end of the year, what they should be thinking, what they should be thinking about for 2020 through their investments. Worried? Does the rally continue? Uh, we're going to sign off on this, Jack, so give us a lot of wisdom on this one. Here's exactly what I think. Uh, I think that over the course of the next six to eight weeks, we're going to see portfolio managers who are underinvested, who have been talking down this market, who have been sitting in 2% in bonds, uh, become, become scared and start chasing returns. Um, I called it easy money on your show a few months ago. And I said the hard I said the hard money is basically going through 
these next few months, and then we're going to go through some easy money. The easy money for me is starting now, making new highs and probably see this thing run up through 3200 by the end of the year. And probably in January and February, we'll see that run up to maybe 34, 35, depending on whether we see the euphoria come into the market. Now, having said that, that is what we should be looking for. We want to see that capitulation. We want to see that panic to the upside, that melt up, the, the move in a couple of days where we're up six, seven hundred Dow points, maybe more. And then, Michael, we've got to sit back and go, OK, we've got to be very careful because now we've got an election coming up. Um, more than likely, we, we're going to have to be very, very careful. And at that point, what I would do is I would start looking for hedges and start to take some profits and start to to, to, to protect myself in, in very unique ways, whether through option strategies or whatever the case might be. But but that's my scenario over the course of the next six months. And, and if we start to see poll numbers go in favor of the Democrats, we could be in for a 30% break from the highs. And that is what my biggest concern is. Ladies and gentlemen, the Wall Street maven, Jack Berugian, uh, uh, whom I'm very proud to call my friend and actually my my, my old friend, thank you so much, Jack. Words of wisdom. We are going to watch this through the end of the year. We're going to ask you to come back as often as we can get you back on uh, and uh, help guide us through these turbulent waters. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us again this week on the Farcast. We will be back next week. I will be recording from Naples next week. Hope to see many of you uh, down there. Thank you so much for listening in your earbuds, in your cars, on your workouts. It's a great privilege. We are very grateful. In Washington, D.C., for the Farcast, I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us this week on the Farcast, and thanks to Michael's guests, Jim Urio, Dan Mahaffey, and Jack Berugian. We come to you every week with experts and insiders to help you gain a deeper understanding of the forces that impact the economy and the investing landscape. Please subscribe and share with a friend. The Farcast is available for free on Apple Podcast and all major podcast platforms. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at farcast at farmiller.com. Let us know what you liked, what questions you have, and what topics you'd like to hear in coming weeks. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell. And before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and your goals. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to us at invest at farmiller.com and one of our professionals will be glad to help. We'll be back with you next week. Go beyond the headlines with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world.